Hi, I'm Takara Small. I'm the host of I'll Go First, a podcast all about the innovators and trailblazers in the Canadian tech world. I've been having great conversations with the founders of today's top companies that are changing the world and happen to live right here at home in Canada. If you want to know more about the minds and lives behind major companies in artificial intelligence, cannabis, DNA testing, and more, make sure to take a listen. Also, subscribe to I'll Go First wherever you get your podcasts. Over the past year, I've dabbled in cryptocurrencies, putting my hard-earned Canadian dollars down on Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin. It's a bit like the financial Wild West. I've seen their values go up and down, far down in some cases. And then there's the fact that you can't buy much with cryptocurrencies yet, and the process of getting hold of them can be complicated. But with the ability of cryptocurrency transactions to bypass banks and the introduction of new instruments such as cryptocurrency credit cards, the financial system has taken note and knows it must get in on the act. The future is coming. This This is is Industry Interrupted. Industry Interrupted. Thank you to Fidelity Investments, the sponsor of this episode. We live in a time of accelerating innovation. New technology is transforming our world and the investment landscape. Ask your financial advisor about Fidelity Investments or visit fidelityinnovators.ca. People who are into cryptocurrencies believe it's going to take back commerce. It's going to bypass middlemen and put payments back into the hands of the people. But there are opponents, Warren Buffett among them, who see cryptocurrencies as little more than souped-up versions of a money order, with no intrinsic value. What we do know is that cryptocurrencies, and the complicated blockchain technology behind them, are grabbing the attention of banks and traditional payment providers, those middlemen I was referring to earlier. One game-changing development is the introduction of a cryptocurrency credit card by a company called NetSense. NetSense helps run the rails on which electronic payment systems operate. Jen Lowther is Chief Revenue Officer of NetSense. She's in Vancouver. I started by asking her for a cocktail party definition of a cryptocurrency. That's a really great question that you could answer really quickly or go into a lot of depth, but at its basic core, it's a digital currency built on the blockchain, which is a distributed ledger. And the great thing about it is it's a peer-to-peer currency uh, and it's irrefutable. So once it's on the blockchain and it's hit there, you can't pull it back and it's a very secure currency. So a lot of people confuse cryptocurrency and blockchain. So can you maybe describe how they work together, but they're not the same? Yeah, absolutely. So blockchain is the technology in which cryptocurrency was built on. So cryptocurrency is an application of blockchain technology. So can you tell me then how your cryptocurrency credit card works? What we're doing with our cryptocurrency credit card is really quite interesting. Most of the cards out there on the market are prepaid cards. So basically people go into their cryptocurrency wallet, load funds onto the card, and at that moment they converts from uh, cryptocurrency to fiat currency and then they can go out and spend it. 
what we're doing with ours is we're tying it directly into the NetSense users' wallets. So when you go out to Starbucks or Sephora or Home Depot to make your purchase, you pull out your cryptocurrency credit card, you tap PIN or CHIP uh, to make the payment, and we do a live call directly into your wallet and confirm that the funds are there, and then the merchant gets paid out in cash. So isn't this more like a debit card or what's the difference between what you're doing and and the traditional debit card that Canadians are using? It's a matter of which rails it's running on at the end of the day. So it does, for all intents and purposes, uh, act like a Visa debit card, but it's running on the Visa uh, network. So if it's running on the Visa network, the whole point of a cryptocurrency is to bypass intermediaries like a Visa or a MasterCard or, or a bank generally. So how is this different and how is this kind of truly cryptocurrency? Well, what we realize as a company is to help speed along mass adoption of cryptocurrencies, we needed to make it familiar and how people were used to spending their money. So what we identified is there's 300 billion in cryptocurrency out there and merchant adoption is starting to take off, but it's still slow. So there's not a lot of places you can spend your crypto. So what our cryptocurrency credit card allows is it allows cryptocurrency holders to spend their cryptocurrency at 40 million merchants worldwide, regardless of whether they accept cryptocurrency or not. So if I have my cryptocurrency sitting with a company from which I've purchased it using fiat currency, I can then download the actual Bitcoin or the Ethereum onto this card and then take it to a shop and actually use it? Um, well, you'd need a NetSense wallet. So we've built the entire ecosystem. So we, at the heart of everything, we are a payments company. But we've got the complete user side as well with an exchange and wallets. So you just sign up for a NetSense account, uh, transfer your Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ether, Bitcoin Cash, or any of the coins that we support into your wallet, and then order the NetSense card. So how are people buying the currency? Are they buying it through you or are they buying it elsewhere and then importing it in? Both methods work. So you can buy it directly on the NetSense exchange, uh, or you could transfer it in from an external wallet. So I think one of the things that people grapple with when it comes to spending is, you know, precisely your point, which is once they've bought the cryptocurrency, it's really difficult to convert it back to fiat currency. Is this kind of doing that in a way? Yeah, it it does. So the reason why someone might want to use the crypto credit card. So currently, um, let's say you're holding $100,000 worth of bitcoins or $10,000 worth of bitcoins or whatever that amount is. In order to spend that, except for the, with the merchants that currently accept crypto, so you would need to go onto an exchange, you'd need to sell it, you would then need to um, transfer it out to your bank account and then spend it through your debit card. That's something that doesn't necessarily happen right away because now you're relying on bank transfers and, and traditional banking institutes. Um, and so, so what we do with this is we're allowing you to directly spend your crypto. So when you sign up for our card, you'll be able to select three cryptocurrencies that you'd like to spend. Um, and when you go to make your purchase, we'll check to make sure that the funds are in your account. And through our instant settlements uh, process, uh, we then convert that over to fiat currency and make sure that the merchant gets paid out in the fiat. Cryptocurrency value fluctuates wildly, like it changes constantly all the way through the day and over the course of time. So are your processes sort of changing the value on the fly? Absolutely. So what we realized early on on the payment side and the merchant acceptance is that one of the biggest 
issues that they had with accepting cryptocurrency was the volatility and the liquidity risks that are inherent with it. So they're not looking to invest in crypto. They're looking to sell a product. So when they sell something for $50, they want to make sure that they get $50. So we introduced our instant settlements program. And what that is, is price protection for the merchants. So when they sell something using Bitcoin, Litecoin or Ether, we guarantee that they're going to receive the $50 in US or Canadian or Euro that they sold it for. So we've removed the volatility risks from the merchant. And so does Visa as an intermediary take a piece of the transaction as well? It does run on the Visa rail. So there are uh, some fees associated with that, but that is all built into the cost. Um, So they wouldn't be paying, the merchants wouldn't be paying any more than accepting any other Visa card. Okay, so does that make the transaction any more difficult? In other words, is it less or more advantageous for everybody at the various point of sale, that meaning uh, the visa merchant, um, the retailer, and the actual purchaser? So the merchant's actually indifferent because they actually don't know that they're accepting cryptocurrency. So when a user goes in and uses their card, they don't realize that it's a cryptocurrency visa. They just realize that someone's paying with a visa because we're paying them out in fiat. And the user has the advantage of being able to spend their crypto without having to liquidate it and transfer it back to uh, their personal banking account. So it really streamlines the process for them. One of the great things that we'll be able to do to help with the merchant adoption on this is we'll be able to show merchants, hey, this much cryptocurrency is currently being spent with you through this visa program. How many customers do you have now approximately? Uh, We have several thousand merchants online right now, and we've got a couple hundred thousand more in our pipeline uh, that we're currently in the process of onboarding. And all in North America or outside North America as well? The majority of them are within North America and Europe, and we're actually working on a program where we'll be able to roll this out to more countries around the world. Do you have a sense of how the traditional financial institutions are reacting to this? It's been a really mixed reaction. Uh, At first, we saw them really digging their feet in and and pushing away from it. Change change can be scary. And and it goes back to uh, the Shirky principle. So the people that have the solution for the current problem are not willing to or they're not incentivized to actually solve the problem. So traditional companies that make a lot of money, why would they solve the problem that they're making money on? So there has been some pushback. But what we've seen in, in recent months is, is they're starting to dip their toes in and they're, they're looking at what's going on so that they can be ready when this happens. Do you know what's driving the popularity of crypto generally? So we've really seen like a couple things. So the birth of Bitcoin came out of the 2008 recession. And we're, we're, we're on the other end of that now. Uh, but where we really started seeing some uptake was with Brexit. So what we're seeing is every time that there's financial insecurity or political instability, people are, are getting more interested in, in other options. Um, and we're already seeing that with the millennials and, and Gen X that are, that are starting to move away from more traditional payment and banking methods and looking for more secure options where they have more control over it. And cryptocurrency really is the answer for that. Where do you see your product headed down the road, say like a year from now or five years from now? Because it almost feels like you're a bit of an intermediary in between like sort of a true crypto solution and the current fiat solutions. Do you feel like you're going to move in a different direction at some point? 
Um, so no, we're not actually going to move in a different direction. The core of our platform is to be the technology that enables cryptocurrency transactions. Now, what we did identify is early on, we need to make this easy. So for the merchants, it's through our instant settlements and price protection program, ensuring that they can get paid out in fiat and they're comfortable with it and they're guaranteed to receive the sale price. On the user side, we're introducing the credit card program, but we, we see that both of these have a limited lifespan they're there to help bridge the gap to get to the point where merchants are accepting crypto because they want to accept crypto and keep that in their bank account and that's the future that we see and the future that we're moving towards we're just making the process easier for everyone involved jen lowther is chief revenue officer of netsense a company in vancouver that recently introduced a cryptocurrency credit card We'll be right back after a message from our sponsor. This podcast was made possible through the support of Fidelity Investments. For decades, they've been giving their clients a world of innovation by investing in companies that invent the future. Ask your financial advisor about Fidelity Investments or visit fidelityinnovators.ca. When we talk about cryptocurrencies, we're really talking about blockchain. But how many of us fully understand that technology? Blockchain allows peer-to-peer -peer payments. It completely bypasses middlemen and the traditional money system. And as the technology grows, some people think there may be a time when we won't even be aware or care that we're using cryptocurrencies. The technology may become that commonplace. My next guest is Chris Rowell a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of British Columbia's Sauter School of Business. His research specializes in how blockchain technology is disrupting Canada's financial system. I asked him to explain how the technology can be used in the real world by real people. Blockchain in its essence is, is just a shared ledger that everybody has a copy of in the network, so everybody can see in that network who holds what value, and they can efficiently transfer that value from, from one person to another. Um, the cool thing about it is that to transfer the value, so to pay someone else on the ledger itself, you don't need to go through a third-party intermediary. So there's no trusted actor that can kind of run the network. It's more about the network running itself. Okay, so really this is about having no intermediary, as we've discussed. Absolutely. So if you have no intermediary there, then there's no real centralized profit motive for processing transactions. So that's kind of why blockchain is touted as being really disruptive because all of a sudden you can circumvent these existing intermediaries in, in the payment chain, um, which has been around for you know, decades already, uh, and then transfer value directly between people. What is the advantage of having yet another payment method? Because I think that's going to be one of the barriers to adoption, is people stepping back going, you know, hey, I've got all kinds of ways to pay for things. Why would I adopt this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think by the time we adopt this, you know, in, in everyday life, we probably won't know we're doing it. Uh, it's a really, like we talked about at the back end, it's a really efficient way of um, shifting value around with no centralized profit motive. So it's much cheaper and more efficient to do it that way. Um, at the front end, you might have an app that has different types of payments, you know, possible on it. And you would just use the one at the time that, that worked out best for you. So the, the one that perhaps had the lowest transaction fees uh, or the one where the currency was the most stable at that time. 
We already have applications on, um, on the internet where they can automatically find vouchers for you, for example. So if you go online shopping, this application or a plug-in to your, to your browser might find the most efficient um, or, or the cheapest way to buy something um, using vouchers that they source online. So you could use your phone in the same way. There might be an application that just picks whatever currency is best to use at the time. So you may, you may not even notice. Would you have to hold all of those different currencies? I mean, right now, there are probably dozens, if not hundreds, of different cryptocurrencies. Yeah, that's a good point. So I'm, I'm really talking about further along the line than we are now. Currently, you have to have a wallet, a particular wallet, to hold a particular cryptocurrency. So there's limited what we call interoperability between those cryptocurrencies. It's, it's kind of costly to shift in and out of each one. Um, I'm sort of envisaging like a, a more distant future where we have fairly seamless um, ability to go between different currencies, as if you would just change Canadian dollars for US dollars, but, but relatively seamlessly. Do you see it as one general cryptocurrency that everybody is using, almost like a universal currency globally? I, I really don't know. I think there's value in having multiple currencies. I think you can, you can have different monetary policies with different currencies. There's also different reasons for having different currencies. So uh, if Canada issues their own uh, cryptocurrency that links to the Canadian dollar, that might be used uh, by most people for most things. But there are probably times where you perhaps don't want someone tracking what you're buying, for example, or uh, you might value sort of a, a more decentralized solution for, for shifting currency, you know, whoever you're paying. I, th I think it kind of depends what type of purchase you're, you're making. The, the real value in this is, again, the, in, in the back end, the sort of the way that the transactions are processed. So if you're able to send money between someone else, if you, if you send a cryptocurrency, that network doesn't have a centralized profit motive, like I said. So there's no bank or credit card company or anyone like that that is trying to skim off the top just by facilitating that transaction. Uh, at the moment, we don't have that. It's, it's fairly, you know, it's, we're still in the really early stages of the technology. So that's yet to come, I think. If we were to look down the road, do you see this technology cutting out the banks or, you know, setting them aside or, you know, the traditional payment systems might completely change altogether? I think in many cases, yes. I mean, banks obviously do a lot more than just facilitate payments. Uh, but if you think about even today, to send money, if, if I was to send money to Australia from Canada, for example, I'd have to go through a few different intermediaries and all of them would be skimming off the top. Now I can just send a cryptocurrency from, from one end to the other and then exchange it for, for Australian dollars. Uh, there, there's a real incentive for me to do that already. But obviously, like banks do, do different things. Um, so I don't see them necessarily kind of disappearing altogether. Yeah, still, I think there's probably a big concern around this new technology, especially from the banks, but maybe other financial providers as well. What do you think the main concerns for them would be when it comes to the way the entire financial system might change? Uh, I think it does change their existing business models. I think there's really no excuse. Like I said, if we have this kind of transactional infrastructure without a centralized profit motive, there's, there's really no excuse for charging people just to provide a conduit for payments anymore. And I think that business model is dying. Uh, I think they'll just have to shift and, and think, how can we really add value to transactions? Um, in, the, in the short term, it might be just the fact that they are a bank and people trust them. <laughs> so people are less likely to trust a, you know, an anonymous distributed network of, of people running servers. Fundamentally, a reconsideration of, of what banks really provide that, that adds value rather than just kind of enables you know, shifting money around. And do you see blockchain having broader implications for the financial industry as we know it today, above and beyond just the cryptocurrency element? Yeah, for sure. So blockchain is, um, it, it records anything of value. And so it doesn't have to be a currency. The first blockchain was, was Bitcoin. 
So that's why we kind of keep coming back to that example. And it's a really good use for it to, to use these um, you know, tokens on a blockchain as a currency. But you could record anything of value. So it could be artwork, it could be diamonds, for example, tracking diamonds, where they come from through a supply chain. Uh, it could be fish to prevent overfishing. So it's anything that sort of you want to keep track of where it's come from and where it's going and to be able to transact it efficiently between different parties. One of the drawbacks for cryptocurrencies is the volume of transactions that can be carried out at any given time. It's nowhere near what the banking system is currently able to do. Do you see that as a major flaw in the system currently? And what's the solution, if that's the case? Uh, for sure, it's a, it's a flaw in the system currently. So it's preventing, you know, it's, it's impinging uh, on adoption. Um, so Bitcoin can currently handle around seven transactions per second. Um, Visa, for example, can handle around 24,000. It's, it's not a problem in the long term because there are people working on this. Um, we're really in the early stages. So you could think of Bitcoin as the sort of clunky sort of Netscape navigator type technology. Um, early on in the Internet, we had these early examples of things that came out that subsequent you know, applications improved upon. They saw the problems and then they, they were able to, to scale. So I think I don't see it as a problem long term. Um, I see it as something that you know, the techies will work out as we go forward. I sometimes think of Bitcoin as being akin to gold in the current financial system. Do you think that's accurate or am I off pace with that? Uh, no, I think you're right. I think that's how it's been treated currently. So if you think about the, um, the sort of crypto sphere, Bitcoin's kind of the way in. If you wanted to go and buy a cryptocurrency, you would buy Bitcoin first and then you would use that to buy the other cryptocurrencies. So it's kind of the, the one that you kind of go in and hold and then it has at the moment, still less volatility than the other cryptocurrencies. I mean, it's obviously still volatile if you compare it to, to fiat currencies. But it is basically being treated as gold. Um, the other reason for that is that Bitcoin as, as a network is less efficient than other payment networks that, are, that use blockchains as well, because it was the first one, because it's kind of um, you know, the first example. So, so I think gold is a pretty good analogy there. The banks we talked about a little bit earlier, governments as well, are both kind of starting to get their feet wet on the kind of worlds of crypto and blockchain technology. Do you see them getting more heavily into that? And are you researching any of the work that they're doing currently? So I don't research banks directly, um, but absolutely I know that they are involved in this. So banks would use more of a private blockchain solution between banks. So if I were to send money to your bank, our two banks, if they were different, they would use a shared ledger in the background, and that would settle the transaction. So it's a really efficient way for them to do it at the back end, but you and I wouldn't notice any different. We wouldn't be using a particular cryptocurrency. We would just exchange you know, Canadian dollars between our banks. So definitely financial institutions like banks are already doing this. The government um, is already thinking about, can we issue a cryptocurrency you know, that links to the Canadian dollar and that ties into the, the current monetary system? Uh, and there's some, there's some sort of advantages to doing that as well. So for sure, like uh, the existing financial system is absolutely taking, paying a lot of attention to this and, and already developing their own solutions. Chris Rowell is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of British Columbia's Sauter School of Business. His research specializes in how cryptocurrencies are disrupting Canada's financial system. Next week on Industry Interrupted, we'll visit the farm of the future. It's one of the oldest industries in the world, and now it's becoming one of the most digitally connected. We will not be able to meet those needs to feed our family, our friends, our neighbours, the country and the world without implementation of these technologies on a very broad scale. We're talking about in 30 years' time needing to feed 
10 billion people on this planet. 30 years isn't very long. Thank you to Fidelity Investments, the sponsor of this episode. Industry Interrupted is produced by Laura Regeer, Anne Lang, Guy Dixon, and Stephanie Chan. Before you take your headphones off, rate, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others find out about our series. You can also get in touch with us at podcast at globeandmail.com. I'm Sean Stanley. <laughs>